Hello, and welcome to episode 60 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. We'll get to my interview with Jamil Giovanni about his book, Why Young Men, in just a minute, but first the news. Thanks to everyone for their patience. I'm trying to work out how I want to proceed with episodes and... All of the different members of the Decarceration Nation team have been off on different summer vacations. I've recorded a bunch of new episodes, and they should all be coming out in relatively short order. It's been an odd week. In the middle of the week, I heard that my friend Alice Marie Johnson was applying to have her supervision cut short. I was pretty happy to hear about that. As you probably know, Miss Alice's sentence was commuted by President Trump after she spent 22 years in prison for a first-time drug offense. Now, I have absolutely no way of knowing what Alice was like before she was incarcerated, but I know very well who she is now. And I've met many members of her large and loving family. I've met people who knew her in prison. And I've also met people who knew her in prison but were not incarcerated with her. For instance, I've met one of her prison chaplains. And he, like all the rest of us, loved the person she is now. So I was pretty surprised to find out that U.S. District Attorney Michael Dunavant had taken time out of its busy schedule to write a brief accusing Miss Alice of everything from masterminding a multi-state drug operation to putting a hit, putting hits out on people. Uh, in and he was asking for her, uh, you know, her call for denial uh, for them to remove her supervision to be uh, denied. Look, I have no way to tell you what happened all those years ago. But why in the world is any of that relevant to if Miss Alice is a risk to anyone now? What Miss Alice, who served over two decades in prison, is asking for is for her supervision to end early. And reading Mr. Dunavant's whole brief, I was wondering what in the world any of what he had to say had to do with why her supervision should be continued. I don't mean to belabor the point, and I'm not just mentioning this because I want to defend Alice Marie Johnson, but also because the point of supervision, of parole and probation, should be to ensure a clean path from incarceration to successful re-entry. Alice Marie Johnson has returned from incarceration successfully. There is no government interest in continuing to supervise her. There's no risk. There's no threat she poses to the community. The continuation of supervision should be about only one thing. If you believe the logic of probation, not about your past crimes, not about if someone is is sufficiently contrite. It should be about only if someone remains a danger to the public and if there's a public safety interest in continuing supervision. The only other possible reason to continue to supervision is to ensure that someone is getting the services and programming that they need. It seems wildly inappropriate but sadly very consistent for this federal attorney to explain his grievances with the commutation process and to attempt to relitigate the case as a reason to extend supervision. And I suspect this happens far too often on a regular basis when prosecutors oppose the idea of getting rid of supervision and getting rid of probation and parole. I hope that this is not the case, but I have deep suspicions that it is. Okay, let's get to my interview with Jamil Giovanni. Jamil Giovanni is a lawyer and community activist. Currently, is a visiting professor at Osgood Hall Law School, where he focuses on community organizing and local economic development. He also co-founded the nonprofit Our Ohio Renewal with J.D. Vance, and is the author of the book Why Young Men. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Jamil. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
My pleasure. I always ask the same first question, which is going to be a little tricky on this one, because in a sense, it's the story of your whole book. Uh, what yeah. was your life journey that led you to the place where you were ready to write this book, Why Young Men? Well, I think there are a few things going on in my life. One is that I had come from a place where the idea of writing a book seemed impossible. When I was 16 years old, I was considered illiterate uh, by the public school system in, in Canada, where I'm from. And uh, that was part of a, more of a reflection, I think, of my effort than my ability. But it, it, it was a sign of how much my life was on the, the margins of the society I grew up in and um, how high the risk was that my potential would never be realized. And, and in that period of my life, I came very close to making a lot of mistakes that I write about in my book to remind people of how easily a person who can be a contributor to their community might wind up uh, punished in ways that make it impossible to come back from, or if not impossible, very unlikely. So. I was having a hard time of it, and I think that's a that's a that's a big part of my book is exploring that 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 process of redemption, that need for second chances. And I was able to get those as a young man and prove myself in school. And so writing became a way to talk about my experiences and share what I had learned through some of the dark periods of my life, where I I certainly didn't think of myself as someone that anyone would want to listen to or that anyone would even you know have a kind word to say about. As I got older, I wound up in Yale Law School on a scholarship after I was able to kind of discover my academic potential. And one of my ways of coping with the privilege that going to a school like Yale comes with was just continuing to reach out to people who were living lives like I had when I was a kid. You know, So when I was in New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale's located, I got really immersed in the local neighborhoods and doing community service work and youth empowerment work. And that set the tone, I think, for the rest of my career. I've been out of school now for five years. Actually, I've not to date myself too much, but six now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, I, I my my entire career has been about you know trying to educate, empower, provide services, uh, and advocate for and alongside young men who I think are experiencing the same sorts of marginalization I did as a young person, or in many cases, far worse than anything I had ever seen. So that's what led to the book, which is I thought it was an opportunity to tell the stories of young men who I think we, we um, in American society, just as in Canadian society, have a hard time relating to. We have a hard time seeing them as people and as the products of a lot of complex circumstances, in addition to decision making of their own. But um, I think there's a need to empathize more with the young male population. And I wanted to write a book that I hope would help people find that empathy, especially and very important for me is across racial divisions, because I think a, a big part of why the criminal justice system in America has not been changed in a way that I think I hope that I know you hope that I know a lot of the listeners to this podcast probably hope is because a lot of the young men affected by it, uh, the average American voter the average American consumer has just not seen his or her own son, brother, friend, uh, cousin reflected in that person. And so I, I wanted to tell the stories of young men in a way that I hope would, would encourage all people to see these young men who wind up in very difficult circumstances and often commit heinous acts 
um, as people who, you know, we could be, could be lost in our own family. And that's, that's one of the main tasks of the book. That's a really interesting way to put it, lost in our own families. Uh, I think one of the really powerful things about the book, uh, from my perspective, is, is that you really do draw a lot of commonalities between yourself and people that I think a lot of uh, society would think of as, as, as extreme. When you start the book, you start from your own experiences as a kid and you highlight the fam family dynamic and, for lack of a better term, uh, some of the uh, alternative uh, families that can come about as a result of not having a strong family unit, etc. Can you share more about uh, why these thoughts, these parts of your story were so important? Yes. Well, you know, I grew up with, with a reminder of what happens to a young man who has no father figure around. Um, Cause that was my father, right? You know, I had him in, in my life as a kid and I saw the struggle he went through to be a dad and be a husband in large part, I think, because not having those things himself as a kid made him, I think, unsure of what that even looks like. Like, I, 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 as I write in the book, there are just moments where I, I look back and I could see the discomfort in his face when he was sitting on the couch next to my mother, and he just wasn't sure what to do with himself. It was just, he was in over his head. And I, the lack of support from a family network for him, I think was a big part of why he eventually gave up on trying to be my dad. And, and, and he left my life, he left my mother and just kind of abandoned us. Um, so I write about that because I think it sets a tone for a lot of the struggle that a young man, whether it's my father, myself, or the many others who do not have masculine role models in their home. I think it sets a tone for what a lot of us go through. I mean, a lot of the psychological research backs this up where you have almost this throne of masculinity in a household where if you don't have a dad who's occupying that throne, uh, who can show you what it looks like to be a man, not just for the flashy things that you see on television or hear about in music, but also the mundane everyday stuff. Like what does it look like for a man to pay taxes, and hold his wife's hand and pick up his kid from school and take responsibility for his family. When you don't see that at home, I think you look for masculine role models that mirror what you do see, which is stuff in popular culture, uh, what you might see on the internet these days, what you might see in your peer group. Uh, and, and you look for those to be the indicators of what masculinity looks like. And that's a really difficult starting point for, for a boy because what essentially he's being asked to do is go out in the world and look for answers to a question he's not even really sure how to formulate. And you wind up with wide variability in that. Sometimes you get, you know, a great uh, father figure who steps into your life as a mentor. Maybe that's a, a pastor at a church or a youth worker at your community center or a teacher or a good cop. Like, you know, it could be a very positive experience. And there are certainly stories of really healthy masculine role models from outside of the home who, who look after boys in their community and, and support them and encourage them. But also you wind up with the opposite. You wind up with criminal networks filling that void, extremist networks filling that void, people who want to take a, a boy and make him a soldier for their cause, whether that's an economic cause of trying to make money or it's an ideological cause of trying to undermine uh, peace in our society. So that, that, that's the experience that I think, you know, lacking fathers creates. And what's important to note there too, is that even if you don't, even if you have a dad at home, but members of your peer group are going through that experience, it bleeds into your life too. And so it's not even just a thing where you can point at the boys without dads and say, 
well, you're vulnerable to this, but I'm not. In fact, I think it, it leads to a broader cultural challenge of figuring out where are these definitions of masculinity coming from? Even for boys without, sorry, even for boys with dads, they may also be around a peer group who's, who's searching for meaning in toxic places, and that will influence them as well. So the title of the book started from an interview. Is that correct? Someone asked you the question, why young men, and you didn't particularly like your own answer. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. It was a Canadian journalist. And when she asked the question, I, I wasn't prepared and I kind of defaulted to what I thought was a safe answer. Uh, it's an answer that I think a lot of people, a lot of politicians, for example, would give, but also a lot of people might kind of lean on by default, which is to focus solely on economics and explain young male disenfranchisement as strictly a result of, you know, kind of poverty or, or, or not having enough financial resources, which certainly is part of the puzzle. But I, I, I think there's a lot more to it. And I was, I was kind of kicking myself that I didn't highlight that there was more to it. And when, but then when the book comes, uh, when you actually get to the book, the question mark is removed. Was that intentional? In other words, it's not why young men is and why are they like this? It's just why young men. Is that intentional? Yeah, it is intentional, partly because um, I wanted to say, like, this is an answer to the question rather than a posing of the question. Right? I, mean, I wanted to highlight where I think there are people who are making a positive difference, who I believe have those an the answer there. But also to highlight that there's no one book that's going to be the conclusive kind of final answer to something so complex. And I wanted to remind myself that I was not writing a, a, a like a how-to manual, right? <laughs> I wasn't trying to say, hey, there's this thing in the world and here are the 10 steps you can take to fix it. But rather to say, look, I'm one guy who's, who's led a life that is fortunately and unfortunately, put me in situations to learn a lot about what young male suffering looks like. And I wanted to share what I've learned. And that's going to be incomplete. And I'm sure I'll write a second book in 10 years that, that adds a lot more to it. And there will be many, many books between now and then who, who also contribute to this. There are a lot of things I cite in the book that I think have different answers than I do, but very compelling and worthwhile answers to look at. So that's part of it. Um, and, and I recognize that, you know, calling the book Why Young Men, not everyone's going to kind of get that from the title itself. But my hope is when they read it, they'll see that I'm coming into it, with, I believe, a requisite amount of humility. And it's a humility that only comes with doing work with young men and realizing that it's hard <laughs> and there's no easy answers to any of this stuff. So you're just trying your best every day. And, uh, you know, I think you foreground a lot of this in the introduction with uh, kind of the famous interaction. Well, actually, it's more of a juxtaposition, I guess. The now kind of famous interaction between Ben Affleck and Sam Harris from the real-time program on HBO. Uh, but I feel like your argument is a lot, and I think I say juxtaposition because I think you're kind of saying that in a way that discussion wags the dog of what's really the problem here. Am I right about that? Yes, yes. And also just kind of winds up making these things like ideological battles before you've done the work to know which ideologies might actually be responsive to the problem. So, so yeah. Know, you, you, yeah. So you think about it as like, for example, like in that, in that, in that kind of HBO exchange, you wind up with Ben Affleck doing this very like focusing on prejudice and discrimination and, 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 almost saying we shouldn't even talk about some of these things because it can feed the nefarious and hateful elements of our society. So we should be 
so concerned about that that we almost need to police our conversations from the beginning. And where and the other side you have Sam Harris who's emphasizing culture and um, you know really in my view placing the the blame for terrorism, but but on a deeper level the blame for violent movements and and antisocial organizing on the shoulders of cultural groups in a way that doesn't recognize how there are many other factors at play. And it's not just something, for instance, a minority group can shoulder on its own to explain. So I think both of them represent very dominant views that you wind up seeing in society. And those are views that also, in a weird way, what they both accomplish at the end is the opposite of what I'm trying to do, which is that they, they wind up trying to tell the stories of these young men in a way that is so um, isolated that the average viewer of that HBO show wouldn't have been able to see, I think, their own child in that, right? They'd look at it and say, well, you know, I'm not a Muslim, so this has nothing to do with me, or I'm not black, this has nothing to do with me. Or they would hear someone like Sam Harris and think, well, that's their cultural problem. I mean, I, as a person who's not part of that culture or has not seen that problem up close in my life, I have no, no way to help. I'm not part of this conversation. And, and that's a, a real mistake, I think, because the, the, the situations that all of us wind up in tend to be the result of a series of factors, both in and out of our control, that create um, dynamics that we are responding to. And sometimes we respond to them very poorly and you know we certainly deserve to be held accountable for for our responses but if the idea is to actually solve problems and not just talk about them in um you know divisive ways on television then we need to take a much different approach than that yeah i get pretty frustrated with that myself on a pretty daily basis when i see people like for instance uh you know picking a political side on this thing with the kids at the border you know uh you know as if somehow who was first to blame for putting kids in cages is more important than getting the kids out of the cages. It's just a very weird way that we approach. Uh, it's almost like we have to check in on the right ideological side before we deal with kind of the ethics of the problem for some reason. Yeah, that's incredibly well said. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, what I, I don't talk like I, I actually go through uh, a lot of effort to not talk about those sorts of stories on Twitter or anything, because I recognize that, you know, the, the context that we're in, no matter what you say, it winds up being like you, you, people are trying to position you on one side of that. And, and frankly, I think everyone with any sort of institutional power in America, um, regardless of your political affiliation, should be embarrassed by that problem and should all feel responsible. And I should also all be wondering, like, have we just turned these human beings into, you know, kind of political pawns on a chessboard. Um, and that's something everyone should feel gross about. I don't know who's looking at that and thinking that they're, so, that they should be proud of how their party handled it. I mean, it's like everyone should feel embarrassed. When, when you don't see that humility, it's kind of scary because you think to yourself, well, this is exactly how we wind up with these problems in the first place. Yeah. It seems like the kind of rent, you know, the, the banality of evil, you know, it's like we've, we're so we've become so soaked into the wrong things that we don't even see the right things anymore uh uh, this is going to be a strange transition but one of the big kind of if there's such a thing as characters in a book that's uh, non-fiction uh one of the characters in a weird way is kind of hip-hop uh you seem to suggest uh 
that there are some potential pitfalls in certain circumstances to hip hop being, as you call it, the loudest voice in the room for many young people. Actually, in fairness, you talk about a lot of different other loudest voices in the room. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I, I always say, like, I, I feel like I have a complicated relationship with hip hop because on one hand, there's nothing that makes me happier than hearing a Tupac song. Like, it just speaks to my soul in a way that very few things do. But I, on the other hand, I'm very aware of the, the diversity of meanings that hip hop has in people's lives. So you, you, know, you think about hip hop, it's this multi-billion dollar industry. Most of the people who consume it, uh, you know, who are streaming on Spotify or, um, you know, looking it up on YouTube or going to concerts. And most of that consumer base is not affected by the, what I would call the philosophy expressed in a lot of the music. Most of them see it as art and entertainment. They're having a good time they're dancing, they're rapping along. Um, there's, a, there's a healthy disconnect, I think, between um, their real life and their entertainment that they're consuming much like you would find in the typical movie or TV show. Most of us don't watch TV and think, well, now I need to do what, you know, is, is, is happening on Netflix, right? But the problem is that when you're a young man who grows up like I did, where you're searching for those masculine role models, especially when you're conditioned to think, uh, and, and even as a young person, you don't know this is what's happening, but you're being conditioned to think that you're only supposed to look for role models who resemble you in some way. So I'm in the suburbs of Toronto looking for black male role models in a community where there are no black men older than me around on a regular basis. So what I'm finding is rappers, right? I'm finding them on TV. I'm finding them in music. They're being positioned as these powerful examples of a black man who is assertive and rich and successful. They've got girls and, and, and they're driving fancy cars. And the meaning that those rappers take is not the kind of art and entertainment that I think we hope people see, uh, you know, music as, but instead they're almost like clerics. They are philosophers. They are people who are articulating a worldview that I am then to adopt. And that's where it becomes dangerous. And that's the difference between, you know, the kids in a place like Southside Chicago, where what happens in hip hop impacts whether some of them live or die. Because there are gang conflicts playing out in the music. There are guns being flashed in the videos. There is a, an echo chamber that they are creating through hip-hop that is affirming antisocial, dangerous, self-destructive behaviors. And to them, that's what, it's, that's what hip-hop means. And I was a kid who was being taught a lot of those same values through the music. So... That's the difference. And I think like even a few months ago when we saw someone like Nipsey Hussle killed in Los Angeles, he was a rapper who people looked up and said, well, a lot of his fans, I think, looked at him and said, he's an example of hip hop at its best. He's an example of a rapper who's made money off music and is now investing a lot of that money back into his community. And I, I love Nipsey Hussle. I really valued the example he was setting. But in a way, he also embodied the negatives of hip hop because he didn't leave the criminality behind. He still carried his blue bandana everywhere. He made gang sit signs in his music videos. He uh, consistently normalized death and violence in his music. And people would say, well, that's, you know, that's art. That's him talking about his reality. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I mean, but if we're not going to acknowledge the difference between 
Nipsey Hussle and Robert De Niro appearing in, Go- in The Godfather, I think we're making a mistake because Robert De Niro is alive. Nipsey Hussle was killed, right? And I think that's a sign of what the difference hip hop means to different people is that some of us lose our lives to that philosophy because it means too much to us and it means too much to people around us. And others get to just dance and turn the, the music off whenever they feel like. So that's the thing about hip hop. I think a lot of people don't understand. And what you find is a lot of like some people have responded to my book and said, you know, well, you're just kind of offering this same anti hip hop, you know, criticism that you know has been going on since the late 1980s, and you know, uh, you're blaming this kind of subculture unfairly, blah blah blah. And I'm saying to them is, look, when we see a terror attack. The first thing we do is we look up the terrorist. This is what the journalists do. They look up the terrorist and they say, what was he reading on the internet? And they say, whoa, he was reading these articles about how, we're, how uh, Muslims and Mexicans are the enemy. And he's hearing all this rhetoric from these bad politicians and these bad you know, people on the in- online. And so that's why he went and attacked the mosque. That's why he hates immigrants. But when a, when a young black boy in Chicago or St. Louis or Detroit or New Orleans kills somebody in his community, we never look at what the philosophical kind of framework of that action. And I think that's, in my view, a bit of a legacy of us not treating black boys as having the same intellectual capacity. We don't see them as having a philosophy. We don't see the framework around the violence that takes a young black man's life. But that's happening too. And I bet you, if you look at a lot of those guys and you look at, well, what are they reading on the internet? What are they consuming? Look at their Instagram. You're going to see a normalization of guns, a normalization of violence. You're going to see pop culture playing an outsized role in his life. And I want us to take that as seriously as we take the rhetoric that leads to any other kind of violence, especially when, despite the fact that hip hop continues to brand itself as this underdog form of entertainment, it is big business. It is multi-billion dollar business. So we look at a Jay-Z and say, well, he's a billionaire. That's the face of hip hop. He's one of the last billionaires that hip hop has had. There have been many, many billionaires in hip hop before Jay-Z. And those guys do not shed a tear when the lives are lost in part because of the music they're sending out. So I wish we were more critical uh, of hip hop. And instead of seeing it as a voice of the oppressor, or sorry, of the oppressed, which it can be at times, I think we should also see it as a as a way for a lot of people to get rich and not be held accountable for what's happening when those ideas are are made actionable in the real world. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't mean to push back too much here, but you know, you give you know, if you think about you know Nipsey Hussle, for instance, you know, I mean, another part of your book, you talk about kind of people's lack of uh appreciation for or trust of the of what we call the free press in this country but at the same time what has replaced and i know you're saying in some cases these become extremist messages but what has replaced the what used to be called you know mainstream media or whatever has been the stories of people through hip-hop and you know part of that story is that they are in a neighborhood surrounded by guns and violence and uh, and things like that. Uh, is there, I mean, I guess, you know, like you talked about Robert De Niro earlier, do you feel like, you know, I mean, it's not like we're trying to get Robert De Niro to stop making Scorsese movies, you know, what, what, 
what is it you want from hip hop that you're not seeing, I guess, is the question that I have. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. Because because certainly I think some people interpret what I'm saying and say, well, is he asking for like, you know, hip hop to be outlawed or something? And certainly that's not uh, the case at all. I mean, I'm, I'm a very big free speech guy. So that's not my intention whatsoever. What I would like from hip hop are a couple of things. One is, I mean, I'd like for adults um, to better understand hip hop and to have critical conversations with young people about it. I think that's something that doesn't happen nearly enough. And that goes again back to kind of parenting and teaching and education. People were helping young men contextualize hip hop the right way. Then I think Nipsey Hussle and Robert De Niro might not look as different, um, you know, in terms of the cultural effects of their work as they do today. But from hip hop itself, I think moral clarity is really important. Like when you are a millionaire who is making music about selling drugs because that's the neighborhood you used to live in and that's the circumstances you came from, I don't think it's crazy to say like, hey, dude, you're a grown man now. Like maybe you should stop talking about that and maybe you should, and you might not sell as many records, but like at what point do you take the responsibility of saying, now I'm a person who can start to talk about the world in a better way. Like, I don't think, I, I just, I think if we were treating rappers with the same high expectations we should have of every other adult, then it would be weird for a guy like 50 Cent, who at the time was in his 30s, to make a song with a guy called, named Chief Keith, who at the time was 17, about getting high, smoking drugs, and drinking. That would be weird, right? To say, to see a 35-year-old man and a 17-year-old boy having that sort of an interaction. I think most adults would be like, hey, that's not, you know, healthy or desirable. And yet there's songs that are made like that. Like, it's just, it's this weird idea that like, you don't grow up in hip hop, your responsibilities don't change, the expectations of you don't change. And when you do have someone like Jay-Z, who is role model like that, he's making music that is showing a different matured attitude. His most recent album, not the one with Beyonce, the one before that, 444, where he's talking a lot about being a dad and raising his daughter and the trials and tribulations of marriage. That's great. And I love him for that. And I praise him for that. But then he also goes out of his way to make a song about being a drug dealer, right? And it's like, maybe having some moral consistency is valuable. Maybe saying, look, this was my life and I rapped about it, but I don't do that anymore because I'm trying to set a different example. I don't think it's crazy to have those expectations of, of a rapper. And again, I recognize that's not good business. Like you're not going to sell as many records and it's not as exciting, but you know, I think there are more important things than that. And if, if, if I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to hold the young men in a neighborhood like that to a higher standard and tell them, Hey, don't, don't be a gangbanger. Don't, don't skip school. Um, you know, don't adopt misogynist worldviews, try to do your best. And, 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 and I know life sucks and it's unfair. But don't let that change your moral expectations of yourself. Like, if that's my message to a 17-year-old boy, then why can't I have the same message to the 40-year-old who's making music about not doing any of that stuff? You know? So that's, that's, that's kind of what I mean about hip-hop. And that's something that, like, President Obama has been that critical voice, I think, at times about hip-hop, where he's tried to speak to young men and tell them, this is not where you're supposed to get your moral guidance from. But um, I think he... You know, I don't know how, if you would agree with me or not, but, but I think he would be an example of someone who wasn't always clear and consistent on that either. I mean, on one hand, he'd be saying that to a group of boys in Oakland. And then on the other hand, he's taking you know, selfies with guys who are still offering what I would say are unhealthy messages. So 
that's what I'm asking for. And, and maybe that's unrealistic, but I'm okay with being unrealistic if it, if it comes to doing what I think is going to be helpful to people. So I'm not sure I meant to go down that much of a rabbit hole, but I'm kind of glad <laughs> you did. Uh, I probably could ask you a thousand more questions about that, but I'm going to kind of, cause I think part of the, the larger point you're trying to get at is uh, well, I think the best way to maybe explain this is to talk a little bit. You talk about when you're growing up, you had a friend named Rich and you all both kind of are going through the same situation, but you ultimately follow different paths. Can you, do you kind of have any feeling for why that happened? Well, I mean, those are the things that, that uh, remind you um, of the, the kind of, I guess, like nexus between the choices you make and the circumstances that you're put in, because someone like Rich, you know, when I look at his life, like he was someone who early on in our childhood was, you know, we, we all thought he was the coolest guy at our school. He was bigger than everyone else, stronger. He was a great fighter. And, and fighting and basketball was kind of like how you proved how cool you were in my peer group. So because he was a good athlete and a good fighter, he was, you know, he, he, would, he, he set the tone for what everyone else thought was cool. We all wanted to be like him. And, um, I, you know, when I looked back on that part of my life and I thought a lot about Rich, I, I reflected on how he was put in a very difficult situation that I think most adults couldn't handle, but, but especially, um, a a child couldn't handle, which is that you're being pushed in a certain direction because people are encouraging you, cheering you on the more you adopt, you know, this sort of Hollywood gangster persona um that we were enamored with but at the same time you know when he was over at my house and we were just by ourselves i mean he was like a very kind kid he was very respectful to my mother um and and i and i think that there was a a very sweet part of him at at the same time so i mean most most people regardless of our age have a hard time managing how others um perceive us you know we all are looking for some sort of status some respect, some admiration. It's a very tempting part of human relationship. Um, and especially when you're a kid, I mean, wherever that, what the source of that is matters a lot. So that, you know, when I talk about kind of the cultural factors that explain things like crime, um, that's like part of what I'm getting at is that, you know, I think someone like him was, was, was in a context that would be very hard to, to change. Um, and and so what that what that kind of like means I guess for like where our lives wound up is that he, um, I think we wind up dropping out of school and never lived up to his potential, and we we lost touch because I wound up getting bused to another part of uh, Toronto for high school, but um, but we lost touch. Um, but I, you know I have him on Facebook and I keep tabs on him and I just think that you know he's 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 doing okay for himself now, which is good. Um, but I think that he had the kind of like social skills that, you know, that, you know, CEOs possess. I mean, he was a powerful and magnetic personality who never learned, I think, how to use those abilities he had to his best potential. So whereas I was in a situation where I failed in many ways at being the Hollywood gangster that he was successful uh, at being, right? Like I tried to drop out of school um, and had a mom who kept fighting with me and made sure that I... I, I went. I went to school enough that I wouldn't get kicked out. I tried to buy a gun, um, chickened out, got really scared because I had seen how that ruins lives, and I 
and I didn't. And, you know, I went through these experiences where I was trying to walk a line similar to Rich's and I failed. And the result of that for me was that, you know, I kind of ran away from my peer group because I thought they would think I was a, you know, a chicken uh, and, and uh, you know, coward or more, more vulgar words than that. And, um, you know, I wound up not even intentionally ha- changing my peer group. And what that did was it just created a different dynamic for me to be around. And I think that was a critical part of me finishing high school uh, and also going on to community college and learning how to read and write effectively in that environment. So uh, in a weird way, by failing at the things that Rich and I both were trying to do when we were in middle school, um, I wound up get, you know, kind of focusing on other things and he didn't. And I think that's a, that's a big part of the randomness for how we wound up in different places. Like part of, I re- like, I recognize that when, when you talk about culture and you talk about personal responsibility, I think people see those as buzzwords that are meant to draw attention away from circumstance, environment, structure, and things like that. Uh, and in some cases that that's true. But when I say these things, what I'm saying is that like, I did learn how to exercise personal responsibility in my life, but I did that, you know, with support, right? I mean, a child doesn't just, I think, learn how to do those things well on his own in most cases. And so I look at someone like Rich and I say like, you know, because I failed at being a gangster and he was more successful, um, I learned personal responsibility and had support from people to, uh, you know, to take um, a healthy responsibility for my circumstances and my learning, whereas I don't think he had, you know, a tenth of the support I had. And that's where, you know, your personal decision-making as a young man and the circumstances you find yourself in, that's where they connect, which is, I do want every young man to make great decisions and be careful about how he spends his time and where he puts himself and be mindful of the way he's going to be used by other people to, to be a soldier for their cause. But I also know that, you know, my job as an adult now is to put as many kids in a position to succeed as possible. And both of those things have to happen together in order for us to have the changes that I want to see. So uh, I feel like, I don't know, have you seen the movie Gladiator ever before? I have, yeah. I'm actually a big fan of Gladiator. Okay, well, I think kind of one of the common themes in that movie is that this is a a society that used to be very successful that's falling apart, and they keep making Mm. reference to there having been a dream called Rome. And your book reminded me a lot of that in a lot of times, because I feel a lot of like what you're talking about is kind of the difference. I mean, I think a lot of times when we see social failures in this country, we point at the person and say, you're responsible, but what we're missing is that there's a larger uh, almost a failure for those people to believe in the dream called Rome, or in our case, the dream called the United States. Uh, what is we? Uh, if, do you feel like the systemic actors? I mean, you talk about personal responsibility uh, and how you want to treat per, to individ, You want to teach individuals personal responsibility, but at what point do systemic actors have responsibility for what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there, there, I mean, these are overlapping circles, um, I would say entirely, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, when you're looking at a neighborhood, you know, let, let, I'm going to generalize for the sake of discussion, but, you know, think about like a, a, a you know, one of, one of the 30 most dangerous cities in America. And you take one of those cities, um, 
you know, and you say, well, let's look at the neighborhoods where you're seeing high concentrations of violence. Those are neighborhoods where you're going to see a ton of systemic failings. You're going to see horrible relationships between cops and communities. You're going to see failing schools that have not been sources of social mobility and in many cases are graduating young people who do not have, uh, you know, a skill set, whether that's reading, writing, or, or even um, social skills that are going to help them in the, in the job market. You're seeing uh, abysmal economic opportunity, uh, poor public transit, uh, horrible health outcomes. I mean, these are all things that are systemic and deserving of attention and things that I write about in the book. The, the, the challenge, though, is so in that imperfect world that, um, you know, people who are politicians and business leaders and, um, you know, uh, with people with institutional power, academics, uh, heads of foundations. I mean, these are the things that I, that these folks should be held accountable to fixing. And I make no excuses for any of them. I, I have no desire to paint America's elites as anything but uh, negligent at best, right? So I'm not making excuses for anyone, um, regardless of your political affiliation or your party or any of that. But then, the, then we come down to like, what do we do in that circumstance, right? So what is the message to boys, young men, families, girls, women, everybody? What is the message to them in that circumstance? Is a message to them one that I think I see a lot and that I hear a lot, which is, well, because of those things, our expectations of you are lower. We expect you to not be able to read well or write well. We expect you to not be able to finish school and go to college or we or or get a job we expect you to have a hard time um, you know looking after children or, or getting married or having a, a healthy family environment you know when we lower the expectations of people i think that is that is another level of damage that happens and it's a psychological damage it's a cultural damage it's a social damage um, and it also leads to a lot of excuses. And I think it also feeds into why the systemic changes don't happen. Because, well, if you think that these black boys are destined to fail in school because they're poor, then how much do you blame the school system? Right? I mean, maybe then it's just the economy. And maybe then it's just globalization. And you, you keep zooming out to all these big problems or it's, or it's systemic racism. Everything becomes these big problems. And then no one gets to be held accountable in the school board, for example, or the police department or the, um, mayor or the governor, right? And so um, in my mind, like part of what I'm trying to do as a lawyer who, you know, is educated in understanding these systems and these policies and this legislation, I'm trying to acknowledge where I think that's important. But in the mind of a young man, that one, I, in my, to me, the biggest tragedy of all is when all of that becomes a reason to tell him that he should be a worse person than he could be. And if you look at, you know, the, the, the root of a lot of this, like every Abrahamic faith, for example, is premised to some degree on the idea that you can determine if you're a good person or not, regardless of your circumstance. That even if all these things happen to you and are taken from you and life is unfair and none of these things around you are working, you can still exercise some degree of agency that determines how you treat other people. You still have that dignity as a man. You still get to say, well, I still get to, to say if, I, if I'm going to speak kindly to my girlfriend or am I going to 
open, hold the door open for an old lady behind me? Or am I going to commit myself to doing what I can to be there for my son? Uh, am I going to go to a parent teacher meeting? Am I going to attend a church? Right. I mean, these are all things that we have some power still. And I, I try to remind people of that power. So when I say personal responsibility, that's what I'm trying to get at is what can you do? Even if you can only influence 10% of your life, like what do, what do you do with that 10%? Because I, I think that that is the source of a lot of power and inspiration that people need to overcome adversity. Um, and hopefully then they can be part of the conversations about improving healthcare and education and law enforcement. And, and that's, that's, the, that's my kind of vision, I guess, for how all these things intersect with one another. Let's take a specific example of that, because, I mean, I, I, I certainly understand what you're saying. I mean, in my time when I was incarcerated, you know, I could have dealt with the guard, the, the correctional officers in any particular way. How I decided to treat them says as much about me as it does about them. I get what you're saying. But so, for instance, you know, you talk about people's distrust of police in the book. Uh, you know, when you talk about it, it's not always the big ticket items, the terrible ex examples that we see every day. It's also kind of the everyday embarrassments and harassments. And you talk specifically about uh, an experience you had with your own father uh, when you were when he was dealing with the police. And so I'm wondering. So, you know, sure. On the one hand, we've got this, you know, we're trying to be the best people we can be. We're trying to live from a, an you know ethos of personal responsibility you come into conflict with someone who pulls you over and treats you like that. Where do we go from there? Yeah. Well, so, you know, what happened to my father when I was eight years old is, you know, we, we, we were all in the car, me, my two sisters, my mom and him. And it was one of the rare times we were all together. He gets into a minor car accident and police show up and turn it into this very dramatic thing. I didn't understand it well because I was eight, but I just remember, you know, him, being asked to sit on the side of the road and being yelled at and demeaned. And it looked like as a kid, it looked like my father was being treated like a kid. It looked like he was being you know, infantilized. And it was a very powerful moment to see, you know, the man that you look up to as a kind of authority figure uh, treated that way by cops. And, and I don't know what happened between them, but I do remember cops then walking over to me. I was sitting in the backseat of the car you know, putting a flashlight in my face and yelling at me and, and basically trying to get me to answer questions. And I was just so scared. I don't even think I said anything. Um, but it was, it was, it was very traumatic for me. And I'm sure it was very traumatic for my father. I've never talked to him about it because he's, he wasn't around after much for much after that, but I, I suspect it was very painful for him to be treated that way and also to be treated that way in front of his children. Um, you know, so so that experience set a certain tone in my life and a, and, and a distrust and a resentment toward cops that, that I, you know, still to this, you know, to this day, when I see people in a uniform, like there's a feeling that comes up inside of me, right? I'm still, I'm not even, even as like a lawyer who can defend himself and understands the legal system and all of that, there's still a residue from that way of growing up. And I think that that's how a lot of people in America feel where, um, you know, obviously the history of race and policing has been um, anything but peaceful and, and uh, helpful in many cases. So, um, so yeah, so I understand that as far in, in terms of what we do next. So, so here would be an example, right? Um, because that happened to my father and me, does that make obeying the law less worthwhile, right? 
does that mean that, you know, cause as a young man, that's what I felt. I felt angry and I felt like, you know, and I've talked to a lot of young men about this, about their experience of police harassment. And many of them say, and I quote one of them in the book where I, he says, and if they're going to treat me like I'm a criminal, like why not just be one? Like, you know, the society wants to paint me with this brush. Like, why shouldn't I just say, well, screw you back and continue down that road because they don't understand me. They want to put me in a box. They want to hold me down. Well, then, then, then so what? Like, that's a real feeling that I think is created by this sort of policing, which is why, um, you know, changing the way policing, I think, is a big part of changing uh, crime levels. Right. I think you need better policing because a lot of the research backs us up. You wind up creating um, kind of uh, uh, pockets of your society that see the law as corrupt, that see the justice system as uh, as not working in their favor. It's stacked against them. And, and that's I mean, and you understand why, because it is in many cases. Right. So the, 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 the point that I'm trying to make, though, is that I guess. Um, I would say to that young man who says to me, well, why don't I just, you know, I sh- why don't I sell drugs? They're already treating me like I sell them. And I would say like, you know, that's kind of the, 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 the point I'm trying to get at is, you know, should you change who you think you are because of how they see you? And do I think you should file a lawsuit against the cops if they mistreat you? Yes. Should you file a complaint? Yes. Should you, um, you know, uh, get involved in holding them accountable and voting for better uh, elected officials and pressuring your mayor to have better people on the citizen review board, all of that. Yeah. I, I am not a person who would say to a young man, don't try to make the changes that you want to make, but uh, I don't think you should take that as a, as a sign that you are less deserving of the kind of dignity that every person is. And that's, that's, I think how, how, how my message plays out in that context is, don't let don't let that racist cop define you. Don't let how he treats you change how you treat yourself. Continue to believe that you are a good person and are, you are capable, and um, and 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 look for your allies because there are a lot of people out there who aren't treating you that way. And and I think that it's very natural. And I was like this too. So I'm speaking from personal experience to to focus more on your enemies than on your friends to see the cops as your defining experience, but then not see that, you know, maybe you've got a teacher or a social worker or a guidance counselor or a pastor or a youth worker, somebody who is on your side. And maybe that person and how he sees you should matter just as much as the cop does. Right. And, and, and I know that's hard. And I, and I, I'm not, I'm not trying to simplify that experience because I know that it's difficult and it's something that took me a long time to work through myself. But, but I just, I, it, it breaks my heart and it makes me very, it, it just, the worst part of the work I do is seeing that sort of trauma change how a young man feels about himself. I, it, it, it just, it's very, very disheartening because what, I think that's the opposite of what um, we want to be able to instill in our young people is that they feel empowered and they believe in themselves. And we wish the world nurtured that, but, but we also don't want the world to be able to take that away from them. And, 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 and again, so when I say things like personal responsibility, that's what I'm getting at is that you're not, you're not giving up all your power to somebody else. So you're, you're holding on to as much of it as you can because you deserve that. So I think uh, earlier in the conversation you discussed or you described the feeling kind of as darkness 
And I think in the book, I think I even maybe mentioned this earlier, I think one of the, the, the themes of the book, in a sense, is that there's that you identify darkness and everything from yourself to ISIS, to the alt-right, to uh, the nation of Islam, to the, you know, every group you've come into contact with, uh, or at least the potential for darkness. Uh, I think a lot of people would find uh, this commonality strange, but I think that's part of the point, yes? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what I'm, what I'm trying to do as best as I can is to show that when we as, as people, and I think this is something that all people can connect with, when we are going through adversity, when we're going through uh, inner turmoil, experiencing chaos, when we don't feel positive and optimistic about our futures, um, when we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, right? When we're, when we're in that, those dark places, there are, there are groups that are designed very effectively, I think, to, to speak to young people in those circumstances. In many cases, it's even this sort of, sort of simple uh, teenage angst that all of us experience. You know, most people, if you ask them to look at a picture of themselves when they were 16, shudder uh, to think of what that person was like, because we, we change a lot. I mean, we grow, and, and yet when we're, when we're 16, when people want to weaponize that angst and that anger that we felt, I think it's very seductive and appealing. Um, so when I say kind of those dark places, what I mean are there are people who want to meet you when you're there, right? Who are promoting a worldview based on the dark, what, what you might call dark emotions like anger, resentment, sadness, depression. Um, and, and they're speaking to those feelings and in a way that might be very, very um, appealing to, to a lot of people. Uh, so that's what I think is a, is a common thread between a lot of these groups. And you know, I recognize there are meaningful differences between, you know, a, a, a radical organization or a gang or an extremist network or a, um, you know, kind of uh, online, you know, terror cells. Like there's a lot of meaningful differences between them. And I, and I hope to not, you know, oversimplify those differences. But in terms of the similarities and what they're offering young people and why a young man in various circumstances would find different versions of these movements appealing i think that's what they're what they do very very well and unfortunately they're reaching those young men in dark places much better than our schools are often much better than our police departments our churches our community organizations um you know and and what i what i try to do in the book is to show why they're reaching these young men and maybe that's something that those of us with good intentions those of us who want to empower people and save lives and promote a more just society um, maybe we can learn something from why they're reaching these these isolated and, uh, young men and, and do a better job of reaching them. For You talk about the importance of universities, uh, for instance, focusing on opportunities for social mobility. Uh, I know in a world in which we spend billions, I know our state in Michigan here spends billions every year on corrections. Uh, is part of the problem also that we're not investing uh, a lot of our resources in communities? Absolutely. That is, um, I think, undeniably the case. I mean, a lot of the programs I write about, like there's this fatherhood support program in Newark, New Jersey, that was uh, designed to help uh, offenders coming out of or ex-offenders coming out of the justice system and help them with reintegration into their families and their communities. Um, it was had an incredible amount of evidence that it was effective. Very, very high rates of success lots of anecdotal support as well, a lot of positive experiences that men who went into the program were having. 
and it ran out of money. And I mean, that's like a great example of like, you know, we, we say things like we want evidence-based programming. We want to prove that, that things are efficient and effective. And then you've got a community program that can do that and it doesn't get funded and no one can explain why. So I, I think that that's an example, but even in a place like New Haven, Connecticut, where I also uh, spent some time, you wind up with this like very rich university, like, you know, that Yale is, um, attracts billions of dollars of investment. Their endowment is enormous. I think it might be the biggest in North America, at least. And, um, and yet you've got poverty all around it. And you say to yourself, like, you know, if this university is supposed to be so smart, if people like me who go there are supposed to be so smart, uh, and the people who teach there are, are the geniuses of our society, you'd think they'd be able to at least solve the problem of their neighbor, <laughs> and yet they can't. Um, so the, the need for investment in communities is, I mean, incredibly important. And that goes for not just economic investment, but also investment in community services. So huge problem. Yeah. And I think that universities, like, I think part of our expectation as taxpayers should be that our universities are using their resources to actually make people's lives better. And for every academic article that sits on a shelf somewhere and never gets read and but but is it, we're you know the, the the public is paying someone two hundred grand a year to write. Uh, I think we should say, well, you know, if we're going to have things like that going on in universities, like we should have some sort of quota or or ratio for you know useless uh, research versus actionable problem solving research. And 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 I think we should would have higher expectations of our universities to use our tax dollars in better ways. Um, you also seem to have some concerns. Uh of how uh, voices are heard. For instance, when you talk about social media and the movement for black lives, you seem to be asking uh, the question of how we thread the needle between underrepresented voices and essentializing experience. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, probably the part of the book that um, I've had the most heated uh, debate about, or one of the, the few parts, has been... Um, Hip hop being the, the other part. <laughs> Sorry, hip hop being the other part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hip hop's one of them too. No, you know what's funny is so it's hip hop. It's the chapter that includes white supremacist organizations as well, because I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable thinking about young white men in this conversation. Like a lot of people want it to be about race experiences and prejudice and bias, and then when I include young white men, I just get a lot of weird reactions where they're like, well, that, I mean, that's not the same. And I'm like, well, but just because you think he's privileged and he, but does that mean he sees himself as privileged? And does that mean that the groups reaching out to him might be delivering a similar message as they are to young Muslims or young black men? So I, that the, the inclusion of white men has also been an interesting kind of source of debate. Um, but yeah, going, going to your question though, about black lives matter um, and, and representation. So I think, my, my, my criticism, I guess, of Black Lives Matter, I think is pretty narrow, but I'm not sure that um, always gets seen as a narrow one, which is, I think a lot of their, the problems that they're responding to, they're right in their diagnosis, as far as there being racial bias and police-involved shootings being a, an unacceptable reality of, of American law enforcement today. Um, but my concern is when we do activism around identities, the kind of responsibility that we think we're taking about that, right? So if you are going to come into the public square as the self-proclaimed kind of experts on what um, valuing black lives looks like, 
and you want to talk about the police, it's like, okay, I think a lot of people can nod, nod their head and say, you know, maybe we have different views, but this is a real concern. Um, and then you take that kind of power that you've been given by, in many ways, frankly, by just news media, because you've been positioned as an expert on TV and, and you're interviewed in all these articles. And, you know, I, and that's not Black Lives Matter's fault at all, although I would say they invite that with their name. Um, but, uh, but, but then you go and you kind of wade into other territory, right? So you put out this 2016 policy platform that I would say makes, you know, like Bernie Sanders look like Ronald Reagan, right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of fringe, kind of far left-wing ideas that, you know, can be assessed on their merit, certainly. But I'm not sure um, it, would, it would be fair to say that, you know, that, it, that those views, whether, and, and just to be specific, like I'm talking about, you know, opposing fossil fuels or, you know, opposing the Israeli government. Um, you know, pro- opposing private funding for education, which is manifests itself often as charter school opposition. Um, you know, you're talking about these sort of ideas and you're saying, well, what does that really have to do with black people? And is that a fair way to characterize believing black lives matter? That, you know, if I, if I believe black lives matter, that means I've got to be oppositional to Israel. I don't know about that. I mean, that's a stretch. And so what you wind up seeing, though, is that when you, when you have this diversity of political ideas, uh, attached to someone's identity, it leads to, in my view and my experience, a a false sense of authenticity, right? That if you're a black person, that you're supposed to kind of stand alongside certain political views. And when you don't, whether that's the news media or politicians or activists who really want there to be some sort of like unified racial position on some things, um, then you get kind of criticized or you get kind of undermined or people don't think you're the authentic voice for your racial group as if that's ever possible in the first place, right? So that's a lot of what my criticism comes from because what I think that means for in real life, like in the practical application of it, is when you have a black person, and I document one in particular who is the deputy chief of police in my hometown of Toronto, um, who is trying to fight for change from the inside. And he's not as radical as I'm sure a lot of people would like him to be, but he is in his context a very progressive guy trying to bring more human rights focus to policing. Um, but he's not seen as authentic, right? He doesn't get the attention that, that the Black Lives Matter activists get. He doesn't get treated as a voice of his community. He is seen as uh, this kind of robotic, boring guy who's not yelling when he gets a microphone in his face. And, and his work winds up being blunted because you have this sort of false authenticity that black people are being held to. So that's, that's kind of what I, what I try to do in the Black Lives Matter chapter, just show how that plays out and, and request, I hope, that people who do activism around identity be more conscious of, of what they're actually doing when they step into the public square, because inevitably when you are advocating as a black person, as a woman, as a young man, like I am doing, for example, there's always a risk of essentialism and you have to be very, very careful with that. So for example, in, in what I try to do with my book is you would, I think would be hard pressed to find any sort of prescription in the book for what young men are supposed to think about virtually any subject. I mean, the main things that I try to say are, look, we need government to kind of not sabotage people and prevent them from living a healthy life. We need men to participate in their families, in their communities, in their country. We need 
men to feel like they're involved in our society and can bring their issues to the table and people are going to take them seriously. But if you disagree with me on Israel or healthcare or you know, funding for public schools, I, I have no intention to, to tell you that you're not doing what's right as a young man. I mean, that's just not my, my job. And I think that what Bla- the Black Lives Matter approach to activism leads to that experience where you're kind of essentializing Black people and you're um, making it hard for those of us who don't agree with you to, to, to be equally authentic voices for our community. So I guess that, that's a kind of maybe a concise, hopefully concise um, summary of what I'm trying to argue there. I don't, I mean, I can't, you know, I obviously am not the person who should be the spokesperson for the movement for black lives, <laughs> but, you know, I, I suspect that they might, or members might uh, say back that, you know, they really are a leaderless movement and that they build a lot of their positions through consensus. Is that uh, not correct or? Yeah. So that, that, that's, um that's part of the response I've heard in terms of the leaderlessness. Um, also, um, you know, they've said, you know, we're, we're, we're a series of different chapters and organ and, and, and groups like within, un, like within the Black Lives Matter umbrella. So there's a diversity of views within Black Lives Matter for sure. And, and I get that, but, but here's the thing, right? You're, you're at the end of the I day, guess let me you're... just clarify, because I feel like, okay. you know, at a, at a nominating convention, the, the, a political party puts out a platform, you know, and so that that document you talk about the 2016, you know, I suspect that that was arrived through through consensus and is actually a representative uh, you know, a representation of a lot of diverse ideas that they are being inclusive of. Uh, I guess how do how would you ever escape that essentialism? I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and so that's so that's kind of my point, right? Which is like that's exactly why you don't do activism in that way because it's unavoidable. Like, look, I understand that their movement would not get half the attention that it did if they were called the coalition for police, you know, police reform or something, right? Like, I, I mean, I get that, like, you know, asking them to brand themselves in these like kind of boring, unmarketable ways is not good for their ambitions as an activist group. Um, but just like I criticized the nation of Islam for coming under the name of Islam to promote a political agenda that might have nothing to do with Muslims, I think it's fair to say the same thing to Black Lives Matter. You're, you're taking an identity as part of your branding. And as a person who shares that identity, I think it's fair for me to say like, hey, like, why are you able to do that? And have you thought through the consequences of that for those of us who don't share your politics? Because I use the example of Lil Wayne, for example. I mean, there you have a black, young black man who goes on television. He waves a red bandana and, and calls himself a gangbanger, um, does all these things that I would say as a person who cares about young men, I would wish Lil Wayne did not do those, right? Doesn't get criticized for it because that's seen as not a problem. Uh, in, in modern America, we see rappers do that and we say, well, that's their reality. So who are we to tell them that they shouldn't be doing it? Okay. But then he says, I don't identify Black Lives Matter, and he gets criticized in every direction for it. Why should any Black person go through that? Why should a Black person be put in a position where you could go on TV, be asked about a group that says it's an expert for your people, say you don't identify with them, and then get criticized for it? Is there a white person in America who goes through that? Is there a white person in America who would be expected to be asked about a political movement you don't identify with? And then be criticized because you didn't stand by. Them. I don't. I can't think of an example. So 
That's what I'm talking about. Don't, don't, if the problem is essentialism and we say it's unavoidable, which I think would be fair to say that it is in this example, then maybe don't open the door in the first place. And if you do, which you have the right to, I mean, I'm not saying Black Lives Matter should be outlawed, of course. Like they have the right to come under that name, but then they also have the right to be criticized for it just the same. Sure. I guess uh, to kind of sum everything up in a sense, uh, you've been kind of all, well, not all over the world, but you've been around the world a little bit. Uh, and this is all of, you know, you kind of cover a lot of that. We spent most of our time on the United States, but how were your experiences in, for instance, Brussels? Well, how was your experience consistent from, say, when you were in Brussels to when you were in Canada or when you were in the United States in terms of the kind of major themes you're covering in the book? Yeah, yeah. So the 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 major themes I would say that link these different countries or geographies is um, what I would call like maybe like a high concentration of dissatisfaction and frustration among young men. So if you're, you know, if you're talking about like, why was ISIS, for example, so successful in recruiting in Belgium uh, relative to, let's say, Germany, right? Um, it, it has a similar answer to why, uh, you know, a gang might be more successful in recruiting young men in Southside Chicago than in Rockford, for example, right? Because the, um, the concentration of struggle, the concentration of disenchantment, of frustration, of overburdened and in some cases broken community institutions to kind of fill in the gaps in people's lives, um, that, that is a big part of the commonality between these different countries is that where you find the high concentrations of male suffering, you often find high concentrations of violence and extremism of various sorts. Uh, the other the other thing I would say is that the internet has played a very similar role in the lives of young people in all these different countries. So when you see young men who maybe didn't grow up in that sort of neighborhood where he didn't have gangs in his community or he didn't have a, a high number of, of of dissatisfied young men who were unemployed or dropped out of school, but maybe you're talking about middle class guys, maybe you're talking about guys with university degrees who have two parents at home and a fairly easy life. The internet is a gateway for them in to tap into that frustration, right? And um, in, 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 and when I say the internet, I mean you know the use of Facebook, the use of Instagram, the use of Twitter to spread propaganda, uh, but also to in, to to recruit, to encourage young men to to participate in criminal activity. Uh, gangs are using it more in the United States. Terrorist organizations and and white supremacist organizations and online extremists are obviously using it. So that's another commonality that has been very effective. And that's partly what I think makes the challenges in front of young men today different than it may have been to, for young men of the past, which is that we, our peer group um, travels with us in our pockets, in our phones. And no matter what we might want to do to change our lives or make some sort of difference in how we spend our time, it can be very hard to fully escape the influence of our peer group. So uh, that that's a really that's a really important kind of thing to recognize that I think is cross cultural. Um, and then lastly, what I would say as a as a common uh, experience is, I believe that um, perception matters a lot, and I think that that's a really important thing for people to to take away. I hope from my book and 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 from our conversation today, which is that um, we might come up with theories about what. Uh, adversity looks like, right? So we can say, well, if you are middle class, if you go to university, if you 
are uh, white, uh, if you have two parents at home, like, you know, we can come up with these ideas for what an easier life looks like. But a lot of it comes down to the perception of a young man. So if he's a white guy with a good uh, education, but has been convinced to see himself as part of a, uh, a group of people who are losing their country to diversity and uh, he must enlist in some sort of clash of civilizations to save his race of people, um, regardless of whether you think he's privileged or not, he needs to, he needs to be helped to escape the way he thinks, not to be convinced to think the way you want him to. Those are two different goals. The same goes for the young Muslim man in Europe who joins a group like ISIS, regardless of whether he has a, an easy life or safety and security at home, if he believes he is being attacked and persecuted um, against and there are, there are people who hate him and he's trying to figure out what to do about that, he needs to be helped to think about his place in society differently and to be listened to and not be kind of told that his life is easier than he thinks it is. Um, and the same goes for, uh, you know, a young American boy who may be drawn to gang activity is, you know, whatever ways we might have to try to explain his life. And I think conservatives who overemphasize personal responsibility, they might say, well, look, you know, in America, the research shows that if you, uh, you know, get married before you have kids and you finish high school, um, you can, you can get a good job. Right. Um, but the truth is like how he feels about his life matters and understanding the adversity that he perceives and helping him work through that adversity is really important. So all of those things I'm talking about, that's kind of the common thread is understanding how young men see the world and see themselves and how they, what their identity is. That's, that matters a lot to solving these problems. And I think too often the analyses that we see, whether that's in books or podcasts or on TV or whatever, is more based on what, what you know, the, the, the dispassionate observer the academic, the politician, the person watching from the sidelines, we're more concerned with what that person says than we are about what young men are seeing and feeling themselves. So that's partly why I focus so much on trying to empower people and to see that, you know, regardless of how unfair the world is, you do have some expectations on you to be a good person and to do the right thing, because I need you to see yourself in the best light. I think that's, that's so critical. And it's something that I devote a lot of my time to promoting. Uh, so I, I usually, I mean, I, I don't usually say this, but there's, I probably had 40 more questions I could have <laughs> asked, but so I always have the same last question. I can guess what some of the answers would be. What did I mess up? What are some of the things I should have asked, but did not? Oh, I don't, I'm not sure you messed anything up. I mean, I think your, 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 your question <laughs> very nice of you. No, what I mean <laughs> is that I think your questions have all come from a place of genuine, um, concern about these issues. And, and I'm, you know, I, I, I honestly, I think that we underestimate the value of that. I, I really mean, like when I'm interviewed by somebody or have the chance to have a conversation with someone who I think really cares about the people that we're talking about, that's important to me. And whether we agree on anything or not, I, I mean, I'd be happy to disagree with someone literally every single thing, as long as we share that in common, that we share that, that heart for people. Um, so I think that's the place you've come from in this conversation. I hope you think you believe that's the place I've come from as well. And, and to me, that's the starting point of solving these problems. If we, if we have that, then I think we have a, we have a lot we can build on. So. 
Well, I agree with you about a lot. That's for sure. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on. I really, really enjoyed the book and I appreciate you take the t- taking the time. Yeah. Thank you for the, for the opportunity to speak with you and be part of the podcast. Also, just thank you for the work you do. I mean, I know we didn't get to talk about that because I assume your, your audience is familiar with who you are, but, uh, but you know, I, I think your, your role in making, um, uh, this country a better place should not be overlooked. So thank you for the work you do. Uh, that's very kind of you. And thanks again. I really appreciate it and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Same here. All right. Bye-bye. And now my take. It was probably obvious that there were a few disagreements that uh, Jamil and I had on a couple of the things in his book, but there are also a lot of things that we agreed about. I do think that it is important, even in the face of oppression, to take personal responsibility and to remain ethically consistent when you return from incarceration. I do think the absence of parents in young men's life can have huge impacts on young adulthood. One of the chapters I found most powerful was his discussion of the relationship between Yale and poverty in the surrounding neighborhoods. And this happens so often. I was just reading a breakdown of Mayor Pete's time in Cambridge and about how he rarely talked about the poverty that surrounds the university, the Harvard University in Cambridge. Uh, you know, I mean, this is pretty obviously the case that in a lot of places of privilege, uh, privilege ignores uh, what it surrounds. And I think that this is a pretty important thing to talk about. Uh, one of the things that Jamil talked about that really resonated a lot with me is his discussion of hip hop. And I don't know if you're going to take the time to read the book, but I hope you will. I grew up on hip hop. And while I fully agree that it's deeply problematic when people who get on the mic and share information designed to lead to new crimes or to identify people that they want targeted. I think that's uh, really problematic and really something that, uh, that uh, it, it's, it's, it's troubling. But I also think it's really important for people to speak out about what life is really like from the place that they come from, from the places where they stand, where their feet are. There is something potentially really important about someone who has, for instance, sold drugs on the corner, not just sharing that experience, but also using that experience to criticize the truth of the futility, unfairness, and failure of our current war on drugs. If you ever watch The Wire, which we reference in the discussion and it's certainly mentioned in the book, you might not, you might not want to be Snoop or Mike or agree with what Snoop or Mike or Marlowe do. But at the end of the day, while as Stephen King once said, Snoop was a terrifying villain, you still have deep empathy for Snoop and when her story ends. I'm not even sure I entirely see her as a villain, especially knowing that the actress that played Snoop, Felicia Pearson, came from a similar life. And you certainly gain a healthy cynicism for drug enforcement by following her and Chris and the rest of the characters' stories throughout. I certainly learned a great deal, not just from television, but from listening to music about the problems with drug enforcement, about surveillance, about racism, uh, about racism and policing. All of those things come through because people, when some people are sometimes defiant about the things that they did in those neighborhoods, but in ways that deeply implicate the way our society approaches these social problems. This is healthy for all of us. We need to understand the people and places and stories of why and how people chose crime, about why their neighborhoods are a mess, why racism is omnipresent. Sometimes we even need to know why people choose and even celebrate lives that we think uh, in more privileged society are, are, are should be shunned. 
uh, it can change the way we look at law. It can change the way we look at truth. It can change the way we look at justice. And sometimes it can even change laws because there is this idea that law, for some reason, is inherently good. That's not always the case. There are thousands upon thousands of laws that have been passed in this country, not just slavery, a lot of other ones that were deeply unjust. And our idea that the, the that the that we should adhere to um, to law at all costs. That that the most important thing about our society is this notion that uh, we are a nation of laws. A lot of times our laws get it wrong. They are lawless law. They do things that make situations worse. They don't make people safer. And we need to hear stories from people making that claim from the position and the place where those laws impact them the most. Now, on the other hand, there are dangers. I am, for instance, very open about my story. My hope is that people learn the right lessons and learn to avoid the things that led me down the wrong path. But I also want people to truly understand what happened, how it happened, and the ways that real people can and do make bad decisions. Even in my case, where I try to be very clear in saying nobody should ever do what I do and they should learn from my experience what not to do, there is always a risk someone could take the exact wrong lessons from my story, but that is not a reason to stop telling the story. It is a reason to be careful about how you tell the story, and I think that's part of Jamil's point, too. It can be a really thin line between glorifying criminality and undercutting, undercutting the investigation of injustice. There's always a danger that people are influenced by or glorify the wrong lessons from art. I guess I think the discussion is a healthy one, and it takes a lot of guts to speak out against hip-hop and to ask people in hip-hop to be more responsible uh, with the messages that they construct. At the same time, I think it's really important that art continue to work against dominant narratives, uh, that it continue to work to tear down lawless law, and to continue to educate people about uh, the truth of where people come from. These are complicated but important discussions to have, and I thank Jamil again for starting that discussion with me and for writing what I think in a lot of ways is a very courageous book. I don't agree with all of it, but I agree with a lot of it. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. And make sure to check out our new t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash on pirate satellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and Robert Alvarez, who has been helping with the website. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time. <laughs>